Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Hi, everybody, and welcome to this week's Talking Biotech podcast by Calabra. Now, one cell divides into two, two into four, four and eight, you get the picture. The process of cell division is very carefully coordinated. And if you think about it, you need to double the amount of genetic material in that first cell, DNA, right? You got to make more. You need to make two copies, and they have to be perfect or almost identical. So in order to make new DNA to split into two cells, you need to make the hardware to copy that DNA and to double check it and make sure it's good and confirm its integrity. But to make that hardware, you need to have all of the other stuff in place to synthesize those enzymes, the ribosomes. You need to make all of the other elements of the cell in order to double yourself. And since this assembly line is so important and you have to have so much careful coordination that there is a very orderly way in which this is done, and we call this the cell cycle. Each step in the cell cycle, think of it, you know, as a a clock, each step has defined processes that occur. So before you can go from three to four o'clock on that cell cycle model, you need to have fulfilled certain steps that allow the cell to progress forward. But some cells don't play by those rules. Cancer cells, for instance, ignore the internal stop signs that check and double check DNA. Division flies through those stop signs and division is unbridled. It leads to more mutations, massive proliferation, and creation of cells we recognize as cancerous. So what if drugs can be developed to target cancer by breaking the cell cycle, by inhibiting the signals that tell cells, divide, divide, divide? Could this lead to the next generation of cancer drugs, or at least drugs that could work against certain subtypes of cancers? Scientists at Cyclocell Pharmaceuticals say it looks very promising. And today we're speaking with Spiro Rambotis. He's the president and CEO of Cyclocell Pharmaceuticals. Welcome to the podcast, Spiro. Thank you. Yeah, this is a really good place to start because we haven't talked about cell cycle much in the podcast series. And so let's start at the beginning. What is the cell cycle and and why is it important? Well, this is the body's own clock. The body has its own defense mechanisms. And of course, it targets cells that are no longer useful or are dangerous, like cancer cells, for destruction. The way it does that is through a process called apoptosis, which is a short fancy word for programmed suicide, where cells have no longer a function to fulfill, they're instructed to commit suicide. So the cell cycle is fundamental to how the body destroys cells as well as controls their function. And there is a Nobel Prize behind this field in 2001 for medicine describing cell cycle mechanics. Yeah, so there's a progression with cell cycle, like different phases of cell cycle that we usually think about with respect to division, which are so critical when we talk about cell cycle and cancer. So what are those steps in cell cycle and how are they normally regulated? 
That's an excellent question. The steps of cell cycle progression are denoted by a single letter, sometimes with a number, G1 or GAP1, where the cells are preparing to synthesize DNA, which happens in the next stage, which is called S phase or synthesis. Then we go to another GAP stage, GAP2, G2, where cells prepare to divide, as you pointed out. And then the final stage of cell cycle called mitosis or M phase, where the cell actually separates into two daughter cells. And we have the cell division phenomenon, which every normal and sometimes cancerous cells undergoes before they are checked for damage. So these four cycle stages, we can think of them as hours in a clock, is how the body actually controls cells. And they provide also convenient avenues for therapeutic intervention for pharmaceuticals. Very good. And are all cells going through this cycle all the time, or do they stop at certain points? And sometimes are they even moving into quiescent states? Yes. Majority of cells at certain points in the life cycle will go through this check stages. The early stage, we'll call this a cell cycle checkpoint control, is G1 slash S. And the late stage, which is G2 slash M. What these two cell cycle checkpoint control gates are, are points, as you point out, where we check cells for damage. If DNA is found to be damaged, then the cells stop progressing. DNA repair circuits are activated by the body. If the DNA damage cannot be repaired, then the cell is instructed to commit suicide. So it's very important to understand how the body controls this process by accelerating and decelerating in accordance to its instructions, which are essential to the genetic code. There is indeed a phase called G0, as you pointed out, which is a stage that precedes entry into the cell cycle where cells are sitting in a state of dormancy, sometimes called scientifically senescence. Yeah, so the, this is a really important part of where we're going with respect to the pharmaceutical interventions, that there are these specific checkpoints where the cells kind of do an inventory and make sure that they have everything in place and that everything is correct before they move to the next phase of the cell cycle. So what is unique about cancer cells that gives them a breakdown in cell cycle control. Fabulous. I mean, essentially what cancer cells do, there are normal cells that have become degenerate, but they hijack the cell cycle control process. The way they hijack it is by fooling the immune system to think they are normal so they can be allowed to progress despite having mistakes, errors in their DNA code. And the way they do that is by increasing the levels of certain proteins that tell the body do not kill do not send me to apoptosis. These proteins are therefore called anti-apoptotic proteins. They block death of cancer cells, which would happen in a healthy human being because the body is organized in a very systematic way, as you pointed out, to kill dangerous cells via this program suicide approach. Unfortunately, in cancer patients, these mechanisms don't work. These molecular breaks are malfunctioning or are mutated. And that is the opportunity, the advantage that cancer cells hijack to allow them to start to expand by proliferating out of control, eventually overwhelming immune system cells that are sent to kill them and finally taking over the immune system or the entire circulatory tree and ultimately succumbing. The patient succumbs to this disease because no more immune cells are there to fight cancer. So it really is this kind of hijacking of the cell cycle and a kind of evasion of immune detection. And so there's an arms race here, though, because we've fought back with chemotherapy, and this goes back decades now, where cell cycle inhibitors have been used to 
arrest the cancer cells that are dividing uh, aberrantly, that have this aberrant proliferation. And so how, how, well, how long have those been used? And maybe are there any good examples you can think of, of different ways in which cell cycle inhibitors have been used to slow that progression? Certainly, as you correctly point out, for the last half century or so, scientists have used chemotherapies in ways that are critical, they're central to the cell cycle biology that we described a minute ago. For example, cells can undergo S phase with the synthesized DNA where they are vulnerable to a drug called gemcitabine, which is now generic, very widely used in pancreatic cancer, in lung cancer, and certain women's cancers. When cells transit, to the S phase of the cell cycle, they are vulnerable to gemcitabine. And if we combine this drug in a cocktail with another chemotherapy, which is platinum-based, the combination of gemcitabine and platinum, sometimes called gemcis, is even more lethal. In other words, gemcitabine slows them through transit in S phase and platinum kills them. Taxane drugs, oftentimes known by their brand names, Taxol and, and similar, are also cell cycle inhibitors. They work in M phase, in the last stage of the cell cycle, where they slow transit of cells through M phase and kill them. The problem with this chemotherapeutic approach is that they also destroy abundant numbers of normal cells. The more we give the drugs, the more damage we cause. We hope and have been successful over the decades in doing less damage than we are causing benefit. At the same time, though, patients are starting to push back. And of course, these drugs are certainly crude sledgehammers. They're not chisels that allow us to take advantage of this beautiful selectivity that biology has given us as a present to use cell cycle checkpoint control to very selectively take cancer cells down the suicide path and spare largely a lot of the normal cells. So this quest has given rise to a whole new field in cancer pharmacology, which is how to harness cell cycle biology without destroying normal cells, as is the case with chemotherapy. Yeah, that's what we'll talk about in just a few minutes. I think one of the things that people think about when they think about chemotherapy is the side effects that do happen. So things like hair loss, digestive symptoms, other types of symptomology that have to do with breaking down rapidly dividing cells that are not cancer cells, so normal cells of the body. And so are some of the new therapeutics potentially targeting, I think you even answered the question previously, are they really targeting selectively cancer cells and leaving the normal body cells intact? That's right. Although we don't do this in the magic bullet context that some other earlier generation cancer drugs have been doing. In other words, instead of trying to find a mechanism that only addresses cancer cells, it's better to give a drug that applies to all cells, but takes advantage of the fact that cancer cells are more vulnerable. In other words, if we stop a cell that is cancerous at the checkpoint toll gate, either G1S or G2M, by using a novel pharmaceutical, if the duration of the stoppage is sufficiently long, that cell will be targeted by the immune system and instructed to commit suicide. It will turn over and die. Normal cells, like our hair or our nails, stop growing, but when the drug effect wears out, they go on and happily divide, and therefore restore their function, which temporarily stop. In other words, Cancer cells are much more vulnerable to this approach than normal cells. So when we talk about selectivity, we need to think about not so much a magic bullet that targets only cancer cells, rather the easier task of giving a drug that affects all cells, but works particularly well for cancer cells who are not suited to defend themselves against this type of approach. 
Very good. So we'll talk about that on the other side of the break. We're speaking with Spiro Rambotis. He's the president and CEO of Cyclocell Pharmaceuticals. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast by Calabra, and we'll be back in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Calabra, the data monitoring platform designed to reveal research insights and streamline reporting across your organization. With Calabra, you'll gain a comprehensive view of your research workflows, simplifying scientific IP governance, compliance, and analysis. Visit Collabra.app to learn how you can transform your research process today. C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P. And now we're back on Collabra's Talking Biotech podcast. We're speaking with Spiro Rambotis. He's the president and CEO of Cyclocell Pharmaceuticals. And we're talking about cancer therapies that target the cell cycle. So when you're discovering these specific cell cycle inhibitors, is it possible to target certain cancers because they maybe exhibit defects in a specific aspect of cell cycle regulation? And maybe what's a good example of that? Well, that's an excellent question because perhaps the best analogy is can we write poetry? Poetry is necessary when you understand how to stitch words together in elegant ways. Targeting cancer indications by using these approaches is very difficult. So instead of writing poetry, you're going through the process of learning how to put words together and hope that they make elegant sentences. What this means is that there is an empirical element. We test in the clinic our novel drugs in patients with different types of cancer histologies, which means anatomical areas of origin, breast, liver, gut, and so forth, and hope to find subtypes of cancer that are more sensitive to this approach than others. And there are specific biomarkers, biological parameters we can use to target these patients. When we see, for example, a patient with colon cancer that has elevated parameters like MCL1 or KRAS, which denote either anti-apoptosis proteins or cancer genes, and we find that patients with these parameters respond better and faster than the population at large, that is a very good example of how we might find specific cancer types that are sensitive to our approach. Of course, we're supported in this quest, it's not totally empirical, by extensive preclinical studies in animal models, as well as the fact that we can do experiments in both petri dishes and simulated systems, which are usually using modern approaches like artificial intelligence, to simulate what we might see in humans. We can also model using sophisticated modeling techniques how long to dose these drugs. It isn't important just to know which tissue, which type of cancer to target, but also of how long we need to expose these cells to our novel pharmaceutical in the hope of restoring the body's own defense mechanism, which is apoptosis. So all of this information is multifactorial, converge, and give us evidence of where the drug works. For instance, in the case of cyclocells drugs, this appears to be particularly true for women's cancers, as well as certain types of liquid blood cancers like lymphoma. And what are some of the cancers that are specifically targeted by cyclocells products? Are, and are there some, what are the recent candidates? Right. So for example, our most advanced drug, which is a CDK2 and 9 inhibitor, CDKs are enzymes that have been found to control the cell cycle. In fact, they were part of the 2001 Nobel Prize in Medicine citation. So CDK2 and 9 are particularly important as it appears from our own clinical results in endometrial, ovarian, uterine, and cervical cancers. 
there are specific biological parameters that are overexpressed or have elevated levels in these types of cancers, which may explain if sufficient data is collected in due course, why these tumors are so sensitive. For reasons that are less well understood, it appears that certain types of lymphoma, in particular, the so-called T-cell lymphoma subtype, which is much more difficult to treat than the more common B-cell type, are also very sensitive. And we think that, for example, loss of some of the anti-apoptosis proteins by using a pharmaceutical can result in death of cancer cells selectively. So these are all working hypotheses that have been generated by our phase one data. We recently completed enrollment in our phase one trial, and we're very pleased to see in a population of all-comer patients without selection, that some of these patients achieve responses that were confirmed by subsequent estimation by the physicians to a single drug used by cyclocell to test this hypothesis. This type of monotherapy benefit is extremely unusual in early studies and portends very promising results in phase two trials, which are about to get underway, but will test multiple tumor types to answer the question you put to me in a more sophisticated way. Well, you mentioned that this is CDK, maybe 209, or one of the cyclin-dependent kinases. When we say cyclin-dependent kinase, what is this kind of enzyme doing to regulate the cell cycle? So CDKs are found to be active in a critical component of the cell cycle checkpoint control process. What we mean by that is that we are in a situation where the cell is checked at the cell cycle control checkpoint. If it's found to have, if you recall, damage in its DNA, it's instructed to commit suicide. The way this is done at the molecular level is that the CDK enzyme actually interacts with the protein its sister protein called a cyclin. So CDKs phosphorylate a cyclin. They interact molecularly with the cyclin. And this phenomenon is what actually causes this cell point control process to occur. But what we're trying to do with the pharmaceutical is restore what happens in a healthy human being. We like to block the CDK enzymes by denying the cyclin its a chaperone, its molecular partner, to get them to disrupt this phenomenon and stop the cancer cell from hijacking this whole mechanism. Yeah, you mentioned cyclins there. I don't know that we've mentioned them yet today, but cyclin and CDK together work as a pair to relate these processes, right? So these are like a molecules that maybe on their own don't have much function, but when they come together, together can help to regulate these different spots that allow progression through cell cycle. So these are really, really important targets. And you mentioned before that there was a, a the, the compound was really targeting T-cell lymphomas, was a specific one there, versus B-cell. Is there a lot of specificity in the way in which these different inhibitors work? No, I don't think we can say that. The finding about T-cell lymphoma was empirical. Although there was evidence that both B-cell lymphomas and T-cell lymphomas are sensitive preclinically, up to now, the only clinical evidence was in B-cell lymphoma, or the effect was typically short-lived. So it was kind of surprising that we saw activity also in T-cell. And a plausible explanation for that is the proliferating number of blood cells called lymphocytes, from which the term lymphocytic leukemia comes from, which are prominent in the progression of lymphomas. It is therefore reasonable to hypothesize that our drug, our CDK2-9 inhibitor, fadrocyclib, or FADRA for short, is particularly active against lymphocytes. And this could explain the phenomenon why we see activity in a lymphoma type that was not previously seen 
with earlier drugs in the same family. And what are your leading candidates these days? You mentioned a couple of names there. What are the leading drug candidates? And, and you mentioned one in clinical trials, but what are the others in the pipeline? We have two drugs in clinical trials at the moment. One is the one I mentioned, the CDK inhibitor, which is called Fadra cyclid, but we usually talk about it in the first half of the word. Fadra makes it easier on the tongue. The second one still has a number code, but is about to get an international name by the World Health Organization, and is denoted as CYC140. Unlike Fadra, that works on early stages of the cell cycle, CYC140 works on the last stage in mitosis. It's a mitotic inhibitor. It works by a novel mechanism, which is still being discovered as we speak in the clinic, together with preclinical observations, and it's in about six months to a year behind our similar program with Fadra. So both of these drugs are entering mid-stage development. We've seen activity for both drugs on their own as monotherapies, and they both look exceedingly well tolerated so far. And one, the CYC140, is that targeted to a specific type of cancer? Yes, the molecular target, unlike the FADRA compound, is not CDK. It's a new target called PLK, polo-like kinase. PLK is a group of enzymes that were discovered by Cyclosol's chief scientist for a decade, Professor David Glover, who is a world-famous geneticist who used to be the chairman of genetics department in the University of Cambridge in England, and now is a professor emeritus at Caltech in California. During the decade, he was Cyclosol's chief scientist who set out the business of improving on an earlier stage PLK1 inhibitor that had very promising early results, but then had an unsuccessful phase three program because of excessive toxicity. We found that the main reasons for that is that this drug had a very long circulation time in the blood, several days, and actually developed not only a short half-life drug, which actually lasts for a few hours in the body, about 11 hours, but also made it oral, which means that we can take it by mouth as opposed to the older drug that was given by injection. So this is a very exciting program for us. We are just in the early innings of escalating through phase one dose levels, but it looks very promising, even though we're at a low dose level. But when you talk about disrupting cell cycle at mitosis, you know, you think about that going back, even old drugs that were used for chemotherapy, like colchicine was used for a while, maybe still is in some applications. But does this have a, an effect on all cells, like those rapidly dividing ones that are in skin and nails, well, as you mentioned before, or is this just kind of put them on hold, or does it really stop them and cause more symptoms for the people who are taking them? So it's more like you pointed out about them stopping the cells from progressing. Cells momentarily stop if they are normal, they're allowed to continue. If they are degenerate or cancer cells, they're instructed to commit suicide. The specific mechanics of that are still being worked out, but it appears that PLK1 loss is lethal for cancer cells. They cannot sustain the insult. Whereas normal cells that lose PLK1 do not die, they stop progressing, and they eventually, when the drug effect wears out, go back into dividing and perform their function. That's why the time the drug lasts in the bloodstream is so critical. A drug that will stick around for five days is going to cause a lot of damage after it stops being helpful. Was a drug that only works for half a day, we can give once or twice a day or for the whole week or continuously, which is the ideal, is going to be putting more pressure on the target without necessarily excessive toxicity. And that's part of the secret that CYC140 addresses in a very promising class that went ORI in the early stages of discovery in this field. No, very cool. So this, the PLK target is an interesting one to me because I, I didn't know about this before. 
Is, is this a hallmark of many different kinds of cancers or really specific ones? Early clinical evidence suggests that there is a particular kind of cancer which is very sensitive to loss of PLK1, and that is colon cancer. In particular, this is true not only for what we call wild-type colon cancer, meaning colon cancer without a specific mutation, but also colon cancers that have a very dangerous looking called KRAS, K-R-A-S. There is one FDA-approved drug for KRAS, and the second one was approved this week, in fact, but they only address a specific submutation called G12C that only accounts for about 10% of all KRAS-mutated colon cancer. So imagine if the PLK family of compounds can address the remaining 50 or 60% of these lethal cancers that are not addressed by the two FDA-approved drugs. It addresses the unmet medical need. And that's why there's a lot of excitement in the cancer pharmacology community about PLK1 drugs and what they might do, but we're still in the early innings of this class and learn more about the biology as we go through more patient clinical data. Oh, very good. The PLK class and, and the other types of inhibitors that you, that you have at Cyclocell, have these shown promise against solid tumors? I know that colon cancer certainly, you know, is neoplasia that it, you have KRAS and PLC are early mutations, but are they, are these useful maybe in more advanced tumors as well? Yes, we actually have a very ambitious program in phase two in mid-stage development that should start in 2023 with our PLK drug sequence to answer exactly the question you put to it. For example, there are specific tumor types that preclinical data suggest might be very sensitive to PLK1 loss with CYC140. Examples are bladder cancer, not very well served by current therapies, a subtype of breast cancer, which is called triple negative, pancreatic cancer, which is oftentimes expressing KRAS very frequently. Most types of lung cancer, both non-small cell and small cell subtypes of lung cancer, as well as lymphomas. So this ambitious program looks at seven different tumor types, identify in mid-stage trials which tumor types are most sensitive to our approach, and then if we see that there is sufficient evidence of single-agent activity, that could potentially open the avenue for early approval by the FDA. Yeah, that's a really impressive set that are there. Like those are seven subtypes that are really aggressive and, and lack good current therapeutics. Is this something that could potentially knock out a large set of very lethal cancers if it was successful? I think it's the second point that you raised that we will want to have new medicines that address a large swath of cancer, different tumor types. The problem here is that the historical classification doesn't help us. Now, Hippocrates discovered a tumor in the stomach that had the shape of a crab, and that's why we have the word cancer, which means crab in Greek. However, this is an anatomical definition of cancer, which is completely obsolete. Today, we talk about genetic subtypes. For example, we're going to have a drug approved for keras mutant colon cancer that can help a patient with lung cancer that has the keras mutation. Even though it's not approved, for that type of lung cancer. And it's amazing that reimbursement authorities and payers will reimburse for that because they understand there's clinical benefits. So we're moving rapidly to a world of genetically defined cancer types where the anatomy is an important feature of the disease, but not the sole determinant. And then we'll have drugs that will be multi-targeted. They will provide relief for patients with multiple tumor types so long as they have the mechanism that drug addresses. Finally, on the longer-term horizon, I would say between 15 years or so from now, and maybe a little bit more for certain tumor types, but the vast majority of cancers, 
the goal is not cure, the goal is control. We want patients to live like they live with diabetes. They can pinch their skin, administer insulin, and they can live a normal lifespan. We think that cancer can be converted to a chronic disease, which requires usually durable treatment benefit and drugs given by a mouth the patients can take at home with convenience without having to suffer side effects. These seem to be very promising targets for drug development. So are there other companies that are working on drugs that target different CDKs or PLK? Yes, there are. As a matter of fact, we're in a busy area. And because we were one of the pioneering companies, we in a way have created a busy area of activity. In some ways, perhaps a bit too much as we're all competing for the same patients. For example, we have competitors who are large multinational pharmaceutical companies with a lot more resources than we have in a small company as well as some smaller companies. In the CDK area, though, there is one particular aspect of competition which is peculiar to me, although we have a drug that for very specific reasons targets both CDK2 and CDK9, none of our competitors have decided to go after both of these enzymes. They either chose to go after CDK2 or CDK9. And we think that's important because we found in early clinical trials that patients overexpress proteins that can be addressed by having both enzymes in the target profile of the drug. A similar situation occurs in the PLK family, although they only have one competitor. It's another small company, and they have produced excellent early data, but the drug appears to work by a somewhat different mechanism. They both hit the same enzyme, PLK1, but the secondary and tertiary targets tend to be differentiated. So lots of competition, we're learning together, we're fighting the same war, but at least in the case of the CDK drugs, we have a highly differentiated agent. And we're the only one so far to have shown partial responses and complete response in patients that have been given just our drug without any combinations. We think that certainly distinguishes Padra also because it's available by mouth and because it's very well tolerated. A lot of listeners to the podcast, when we talk about cancers, we talk about what's happening right now in terms of the next wave of therapeutics. A lot of people know somebody who is suffering or who is getting through who these kinds of discussions are extremely hopeful. What, what kind of timeline are we looking for, for some of the new developments from your company? Well, certainly, if you look at the broad picture the, from the 65,000 foot level, we've made incredible progress in certain tumor types. When I started my career after graduate training in Chicago in the 80s, Lung cancer was death sentence. Then if you have people going over a couple of years of survival, it was a notable event in any hospital. Nowadays, we routinely have patients who survive five to 10 years with a lung cancer. We're already there and maybe 20 to 30 years of survival with breast cancer. However, some tumor types remain essentially intractable. Pancreatic cancer, acute myeloid leukemia have survival in months. And the goal is to find the more difficult tumor types, understand by subdividing them into smaller groups, sensitivities of cancer cells to new therapeutic approaches, and then chiseling away. It's a big white space, of course, for many tumor types, but we're becoming smarter every day as biochemists are relentlessly discovering new targets for pharmaceutical approaches. So we're in a golden age of drug discovery, and I remain very optimistic that this chiseling away by thousands of scientists and thousands of companies, as well as academic laboratories, is going to produce results that will be meaningful for the average person that is watching this tremendous battle to control cancer as a disease that can be dealt chronically as opposed to a curable disease, which I think is not very realistic for most tumor types. I know that anecdotes usually are not terribly exciting evidence, but in your clinical trials or in different trials of these drugs, 
it would seem that you would see some evidence that they may be working to help people. So have you actually seen any evidence that these are working positively to at least appear to reverse different cancers for actual patients? We have. And the effect, of course, in early development, what we call phase one studies, is very difficult to predict because by definition, phase one patients are very near hospice care, terminal care or death. And they altruistically volunteer their livelihood and comfort in the last weeks of life so that somebody else with the same disease can learn. So it's pretty exciting for us in the drug development community when we see a patient respond to monotherapy with an investigation or drug early in development for these reasons. We've helped a few patients with FADRA at this point, mostly, as I mentioned earlier, with women's cancers, patients with ovarian, breast, cervical, and uterine cancer have seen tumor shrinkage. And very impressively, a patient with endometrial cancer went through four cycles, which is a month and a half of FADRA, and achieved the 46% shrinkage of her target tumor lesions. She stayed on therapy for another year, at which point 100%, all of the lesions detected when she was first diagnosed had disappeared. She's on her third year of single-agent therapy with FADRA, and still her tumor hasn't come back. So she's functionally cured after a recent PET scan showed she had no residual foci of cancer. So this phenomena are exceedingly rare in our business. Anecdotes don't make a trend, but they're extremely encouraging to have other patients volunteer their time to motivate physicians to explain to these patients the benefits and handicaps of participating in trials and to allow us to then study these new approaches in a larger population and hopefully bring them to the bedside. Well, that's a really good note to end on. If there people wanted to learn more about your company, where would they look? Well, our website, w.cyclacel.com is a good resource. We also are active in social media if you wish to follow our story. But I'll also urge you to look at literature searches and also publicly available databases describing cell cycle phenomena. There's a large amount of literature accessible to the public where people can learn more about this phenomenon and how scientists use these important biological tools to design new therapeutics. Very good. Well, thank you very much for joining me today. And I hope that as time goes on and as new breakthroughs happen, you, you'll consider coming back on the podcast to keep us up to date because this is really exciting stuff that I think is just the, the future is, you mentioned now is the golden age, but I think even more golden ages in front of us. So Spiro Rambotis, thank you so much for joining me on today's podcast. Thank you for having me, Kevin. And as always, thank you for listening to this week's Talking Biotech podcast by Collabora. It's estimated something like one in three people will contract some sort of cancer in their lifetime. And knowing that there are therapies that are coming that can add to the arsenal of ways to confront these insidious diseases can be really optimistic, especially for those who are affected right now and living with it and battling through it. There's lots of good scientists who are working hard to exploit these vulnerabilities of cell biology to be able to attack cancer cells and win that war. This is Collabra's Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll talk to you again next week. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Collabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Collabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time 
sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at collabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.